Checkity check. Check, check, check. Everybody check ready? yourself before you wreck yourself. Don't, don't, don't. <laughs> <laughs> I can't help it. <laughs> Welcome back to GC8. I'm Eric. I'm Rosie. And I'm Johanna. This week we are finally wrapping up Cowboy Bebop. Session 6, episodes 23 through 26. At the time of this recording, it is Halloween week. So we watched Young Frankenstein with the uncles and mom for movies with mom this week. And I forgot how hilarious that movie was. And it had been so long. <laughs> That's uh, Frankenstein. Frankenstein. <laughs> Until the end of the movie when he's like, oh, okay, it's Frankenstein. <laughs> uh, uh, we're related. <laughs> Frau Blucher. <laughs> yes. The horse's name. <laughs> I think my all-time, one of my all-time favorite like scenes from movies is like the just a gigolo song <laughs> dance from that that movie like it's just like so left field like okay oh i know <laughs> i think it's gene hackman as the blind man is, oh. is such a great just like the last person you'd expect shows up it's awesome oh yeah oh yeah the uncles got a big kick out of that. That was really funny. And I love the putting on the Ritz scene when they perform at the end. <laughs> love it. I went and saw Dune in the IMAX last weekend. Okay, that'll be enough from you. <laughs> I was going to say, I'm not going to talk about Dune. I'm just going to talk about how awesome it was going to the IMAX after a year of not really seeing a lot of movies in the theater, definitely years since I've been to the IMAX. And I skipped seeing James Bond in the IMAX because I wanted to see it opening night. But Dune, I was willing to wait till there were good seats available. And oh my God, that is the only place to see that film and, and maybe any film. Praise, praise to IMAXs if we're going to be talking about epic action in Cowboy Bebop. I can see how that might be the case for Dune, but I am not a big <laughs> IMAX person. I think that for me, the home viewing is not ideal, but IMAX is the opposite. It's too big. If you can't see the entire screen at once, you're missing something. I feel like I'm missing something. So I don't like when I have to look everywhere, left, right, up, down to see everything that's going on. Oh, I'm the opposite. I, I like where my gaze is focused on whatever the focal point of the action is. And then everything else is in my periphery. When, when I'm in the theater, I sit in like the second or third row. I don't want to see anything around the screen. And it's okay if the edges I, I lose. Okay, well, people can write in and let us know what they think about that. Personally, I think so much is composed into movie frames these days that I feel like I'm losing part of the art if I'm not seeing the whole thing. You know, I would tell you what I watched, but I've been working so much the last week that I don't think I have consumed any media other than podcasts on the drive to and from work. So I guess I will say what I've been listening to is Spooked, which is an NPR show that has run the past few years. And it's a bunch of 
supposedly true ghost stories. They're pretty terrifying. One of the last ones I listened to was about a clown, and that's always terrifying. But it was <laughs> a clowns. Mexican parade, and and there was an explosion that 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 blew up the clown car. <laughs> <laughs> and one of the clowns <laughs> flew through the air and landed and sort of got up and this little kid and his brother were laughing at the clown and then the clown attacked them at night in their house supposedly and it wasn't really a ghost story it was more like there was a guy that was a clown that was terrorizing these kids <laughs> and, <laughs> and, um, clowns are scary enough when they just stand there so <laughs> right so that's what i've been up to but let's jump into it because we have got a lot to talk about this is the end of Cowboy Bebop, and I'm going to tell you right now, no, we, we are, are not, not going, going to go to the lobby, lobby so, so you're not going to have to suffer through that horrible song, because I did not pair this with anything. I had just a glass of water. You may want a glass of water. Maybe if you're going to buy anything else at the concession stand, it would be one of those little travel packs of tissues, because this is the end of Cowboy Bebop. Let's start out with Brain Scratch. This episode opens with a really transfixing clip from what seems to be a TV show or an advertisement. There's a lot in this episode where you're seeing content mediated through other screens within the episode, whether it's through a laptop screen trying to hack in or whether it's clips from different televisions. But this opening sequence is really fascinating because it introduces live action footage into this animated world. Part of this super trippy, high frequency hypnotism that happens is using this live action imagery to introduce this idea of a higher plane of existence that these characters can access if they upload their brains to the cloud, basically leaving their physical form behind, existing as pure soul in the digisphere. If that sounds like a Black Mirror episode, <laughs> you're not wrong. Seems like they may have ripped that Sanji DePero idea straight from Brain Scratch. But what's cool is that this technology that's been developed to scan your consciousness and supposedly upload you to this system came out of a video game console that this this video game uh, device from the, the future allows the console to read your brain waves so that it can interpret what your movements are going to be. Think of it as next level VR. But this game console has been co-opted by what seems to be an evil cult leader who is capturing people and more or less enslaving them to, to this alternate reality. Uh, it first seems like stakes are pretty low, like what's going on with this, but quickly we find out that Faye has been uh, looped into this. We don't know whether she's been tricked into thinking she can escape her debts by leaving her physical form behind, or if she's been captured but immediately Spike and Jet go to figure out how to rescue her, figure out what's wrong. Also happens that there's a pretty sweet bounty on the cult leader behind it. And they, they go after her, try to figure out how to save her. 
there's some some really fun moments in this scene. Ayn gets to shine as a character in this episode. He rescues Jet uh, from getting sucked into the system himself. And then they are able to un to hack into the system by putting the headset on Ayn, who is at less danger of being permanently sucked into the system. But for whatever reason, this console works on dogs too, and they're able to then hack in and access the system to figure out who's really behind it. Visually, it's a very interesting episode. Curious to hear if, if either of you have any thoughts. We didn't get into the background this time, but there are a couple of things that happened in the years prior to this. One was the Heaven's Gate cult, which we've talked about in a different episode already, so I'm not going to go deep into it. But in 1996, there was this mass suicide, and their leader, I think his name was Doe, if I remember right, he looks very much like the cult leader in, or the VR cult leader in this episode. Slightly skinny, bald, unblinking. The video reminds me so much of his final video. So I'm pretty sure Heaven's Gate was probably an inspiration for this. I think the Eye in the Pyramid, which we always associate with cults in the Illuminati, that appears in the beginning of this. The other thing that I was reminded of was in Tokyo, there was a cult that came to light the previous year before the Heaven's Gate incident, which was Om Shinrikyo. Om Shinrikyo released sarin gas, which is a deadly nerve gas in the Tokyo subway because uh, they were some kind of doomsday cult. They had like a secret base on Mount Fuji and all sorts of stuff. So those two cults were in my mind when I was watching this. So I think that that was probably big in the minds of the creators at the time. Interestingly, both Om Shinrikyo and Heaven's Gate still exist to this day and uh, have like circa 90s web pages, even though like <laughs> both of them were, yeah, uh, they still exist, both of them, which just shows how like enduring cults are. The other thing that this episode reminded me of was a classic trope in cyberpunk was always, uh, and again, I, I'll cite Max Hedrum because that's my favorite cyberpunk TV show after Cowboy Bebop or tied with Cowboy Bebop. I don't know. Anyway, um, it was a lot of times video games to some extent, but even to a greater extent, TV is always talked about in cyberpunk as being this like, you know, it'll rot your brain, you know, the thing your parents always used to tell, because I guess it was um, passive, unlike the internet, which was active, you know, but TV, what's sort of ironic is that's how we viewed television in the 90s. And you see like at the cult, they have this, this just tower of television sets and things like that. But in reality, nowadays, it seems like social media has actually become what they always thought TV would be, where like it affects society in these weird ways and people are, are being brainwashed by it and things like that. It's closer to what, what we would talk about social media today. Mm -hmm, anyway, definitely. those were the thoughts that stuck out to me when I was watching this. Let us not forget that Heaven's Gate, the cult, was 
like heavily, heavily influenced by Star Wars, Star Trek, Close Encounters of the Third Kind. Nichelle Nichols' brother was a member of the cult, and I'm sure that that's where a lot of the Star Trek influence came from. But it's interesting to think about this episode identifying television as a key part of that problem and really emphasizing that element. I mean, the religious element clearly comes through, but it's highlighting that part of the Heaven's Gate mythology as well. It made me think of David Koresh as well. You know, let's not sleep on that one. He, you know, his his cult back in 93 was basically <laughs> just completely destroyed by the feds because, you know, they were de- dangerous. But, um, you know, so it just, it, it was interesting to see how it spotlighted a cult. I kind of like it when shows go that direction just to see what they do with it. Growing up in a religious background and being told that everything is a cult, it's kind of... Um, interesting to see what other people's takes are on that and also uh can we talk about the fact that big shot you know the the hee-haw of of bounty hunters was canceled during this episode <laughs> that was kind of oh. a funny scene in the in the middle of the show that kind of broke things up a little bit that she was like i'm calling my agent that was kind of funny but it's also foreshadowing of the end of the series itself right true very true I, very true i get the feeling that cowboy bebop was canceled and they put that in there like okay we know we're canceled let's let's cancel big shot <laughs> Let's start paving the way for that. <laughs> I also think that this episode is a good precursor to shows like The Matrix, to things that involve your consciousness existing in another technical field and sort of imagining what that technology would be like. But we can get to that anon. All right. So let's talk about the next episode, episode 24 hard luck woman of course the title comes from a kiss song kiss yes i'm not actually a huge kiss fan sorry (laughs) to alienate the kiss army but um uh yeah it's it's a kiss song listen to it if you get a chance um (laughs) anyway hard luck woman may refer to faye since this is all about her but it also could refer a little bit to ed both have had some bad luck in their past. In Hard Luck Woman, we find out that Faye was on a plane, space shuttle. It's actually, I think, a space shuttle. When the cataclysm happened, she was the sole survivor. The Bebop comes back to Earth, and Faye immediately takes off to find where she lived. And uh, she takes Ed with her. But Ed... (laughs) Ed actually takes her to the orphanage where she lived. And there, the nun told Ed that uh, her father came looking for her. We also find out that her father is, I don't know, he's sort of a crazy GPS guy. He's like remapping the earth, which is a little bit odd because the landscape is changing because it's constantly being bombarded by pieces of the moon and stuff that are are crashing into it. So it's kind of this quixotic venture, but there's a bounty on Ed's father. And so Jet and Spike come looking for him. Or shortly after that, the reunification of Ed, who her father 
thinks might be called Francois. So we have like a, a deadbeat enough dad that he doesn't even know <laughs> his kid's <laughs> name. But they well, don't seem to have a lot of animosity. Like they're happy to see each other, but he then takes off again and leaves her again. Faye goes back to the place where she was born. She had in, briefly encountered previously an old woman who knew her when she was a girl. And the place is gone. It's, it's just... just completely destroyed. She, she sort of draws out a bed for herself on the ground and lies in it. Faye leaves the bebop saying that she belongs back there and tells Ed, you belong somewhere too. Belonging is the best thing ever, which makes this episode even more sad when there is no place for them to go back to. The theme here, and this is a theme that runs through every major plot line in Cowboy Bebop, not just Ed and Faye. You can never go back. You can never go back to the past. There is no way back to what you had before. The uh, final line of the episode, instead of saying, see you cowboy, it says, see you cowgirl someday, somewhere. Mm. Reactions? So I, this show was, sad for me um you know because there's nothing worse than watching a parent leave their kid um so that kind of didn't sit right with me especially when he was like yeah that's my kid yeah gotta go and then you find out that not only that he forgot which daycare he left his kid at and his kid ended up in an orphanage i mean i don't know what it is with this guy but he's a mess and i feel like i've met a few guys like him in the past the Japanese voice actresses that played Faye and Ed agreed Ed's mother must be dead because no mother would let their child be put in a daycare and not like come for them or come looking for them. So although it's never written or said anywhere, they believe that Ed's mother's dead. Yeah, that kind of makes sense because she's just not in the picture the guy did something that i hate to say is kind of stereotypical um where you know it's like oh a guy doesn't know how to raise a kid so he's just gonna leave him somewhere and let somebody else take care of him which it's been like that in decades past you know uh but it's definitely not like that now but you know it's like also kind of interesting to see a nun running an orphanage in the future on a planet that's being destroyed by meteors but <laughs> but neither of them is particularly attached to each other i i think that yeah. ed doesn't even take the photo i don't think she might have i don't remember but but she just refers to him as father person I know. Yeah. She's like, father person gone. <laughs> father person like, meets Paul. spike person. <laughs> yeah, spike person. Father person gone. Also, did you notice that Spike was reading a book called Walking on the Moon? Also a song by uh, the police. Wanted to yeah. point that out. Yeah, I noticed that. Yeah, this, this episode hit me hard as well, Rosie. Um, uh, and some of it is just remembering and and. Eric, I think your analysis of like, you can't go back to the past is spot on, but boy, does this episode make you want to. <laughs> it, that that longing for your childhood self and wanting to protect that self from what's coming next. And also, you know, wanting to go back to a time of innocence when you felt more in tune with who you are before life kicks the shit out of you. Um, I that that all came through but but I think you're right the episode 
clearly is is showing that as much as you want to go back to being that younger self or or to save them you can't yeah okay on that note let's get into the <laughs> final two here the real folk blues part one and part two i did look it up and i mean the real folk blues is a song that was performed by the seatbelts on the episode in this episode vicious is about to be executed i thought he was dead <laughs> but apparently he was just in big fat trouble spike runs into shinjin again warns spike that julia is in trouble with the red dragons so you know spike is making it his mission to find her and help her. And then she eventually like sends a message, like meet me at the spot. She runs into Faye who Faye randomly like helps her in a testy situation because red dragons are coming after her. Faye doesn't know that Julia is who she is. Julia doesn't know that Faye is who she is. They just, they're like, Hey girl, I got you. Okay. Helps her out. And then later come to find out Julia does know who Faye is, and she's like, tell Spike to meet me at the spot. He'll know what I'm talking about. Jet warns Spike, don't do it. Leave the past in the past. One thing I wrote in the notes is, you know, is this a trap? Is Julia having Spike meet her there because it's a trap? And then he does. She has a gun. It cuts away, comes back. She doesn't end up killing him, but uh, it does end up leading to a magnificent fight scene at the end between Vicious and Spike. Uh, the last two episodes sort of run together because they're two parts of the same thing. So I'm sorry if this is in part two, but I can't remember if it was in part one or part two. But we finally learn what the deal with Julia was, which the Red Dragon Syndicate mm -hmm. offered her. Uh, she could either kill Spike or they would kill her, you know, so she was kind of like supposedly protecting spike by not showing up although in which case it seems like they're still going to want to kill both of them so i don't it doesn't make a lot of sense to me but <laughs> so yeah. there's a great quote from i think this is from the first half of that episode there was a woman she was the part of me i had lost along the way the part i was missing the part i had been longing for she's back i think this is interesting just just returning to our previous conversation about trying to reunite or redo the past that mm -hmm. this pair of episodes in a lot of ways is trying to do a redo of this dynamic where Julia is supposed to go kill him, doesn't, sets Spike off on this other path of being more or less on the run, run and trying to, to escape the syndicate. But also kind of interestingly, Spike hasn't moved on and her coming back into his life is an opportunity for him to take another pass at that, to relive the past with, of course, disastrous results. <laughs> so, and then that, that'll lead us into episode 26 and then part two. I also want to just draw out another great line in the bar fight uh, <laughs> in the beginning of episode 25 that the bartender is making a drink for Spike. And it just like, this is such a classic, like Han Solo scoundrel kind of, kind of line, or James Bond kind of line to throw out. But he says, definitely too much vermouth in the middle of the bar <laughs> fight. You know, manages to take a sip of the cocktail the guy made. He's like, definitely too much vermouth. So oh, yeah. <laughs> 
I remember that, and I briefly thought about vermouth and white cocktails it's used in, and then I was like, yeah, we're not doing that for um, pairings this time. Oh. Um, Jet kept warning him, you know, forget about her, and mm -hmm. he probably should have. We should mention that Faye and Ed are gone at this point. They've already left, so we already have the breaking of the fellowship here. And Ayn went with... Edward. Uh, Edward, yeah. In fact, there's this really touching little moment where Ayn is trying to decide between staying with Jet, who's the one that always feeds him, and going with Ed, who's the one that always plays with him and decides to go with Ed in the previous episode. But now, as we get to the last two episodes here, and now the last episode, it's really the primary story we find out all along has been the Spike story. And Spike is reunited with Julia only to have her killed. Vicious led a coup and took over the Red Dragon Syndicate. So now he has the entire Red Dragon Syndicate working for him, determined to take down Spike. And of course, Spike's just one guy. He's a badass, but he can't take on an entire syndicate on Earth where they've got everything. This leads Or to can a... he? <laughs> well, we this is not hero. Hmm. We we have a final showdown between Spike and Vicious, gun versus sword. Vicious has the sword. Vicious is shot, but also slashes Spike, who emerges from the compound at the very end, raises a finger and points it toward all of the red dragon syndicate who have him at gunpoint. And he, it looks like he's about to get riddled by bullets when he collapses and dies. And that is the final image of Cowboy Bebop. One thing I noticed is that when Julia was killed, there were birds. And then when Spike was killed, there were birds. Did you guys notice mm -hmm. that? Um, yeah, doves. Just, yeah. 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 I it noticed was, her uh, birds, but I didn't notice his. That's a good catch, Rosie. Thanks. Yeah, I was like, and, oh, there are birds again. Okay. <laughs> and we also see the falling of the rose, which is like a classic Cowboy Bebop image. Mm -hmm. The rose falling in the rain. I also wanted to point out with the ending, the music is so different. You know, for, for most of the series, we have very melancholy music or it's action music and it's that bebop jazz or it's hard rock in some variation. And then in the ending credits in that end sequence, it suddenly shifts into a, a major key and it's very hopeful and upbeat sounding, you know, that that we, we get that version of the conclusion. It's not inviting us to be sad so much as to, to feel relieved for Spike almost, that he's been freed from, from this endless run of you know, trying, trying to make sense of the world, trying to find meaning, and, and that he's gotten some relief. The Sea of Cowboy in this ends with you're going to carry that weight, you know, reference to the Beatles song, but basically uh, it's true. You, someone is going to carry that weight going on, right? Jet's still alive. You're going to carry that weight. And I have, 
obviously I saw this even before it was released in the States. So I saw this probably in like 98 and I have carried that weight for 20 years, obviously, because I have not forgotten this series in over two decades. It has still remained my favorite all time anime and one of my favorite all time sci-fi TV series. And now I have put that onto you too, and you will carry that weight for 20 more years because I you're will not carry that weight for you're a not long gonna time. Yeah. <laughs> you're not going to forget this series soon. It's the kind of thing that sticks with you. The ending sort of felt inevitable in some way that this showdown was going to go this way. For me, it was the moment when Jet makes that same beef and green beans meal that is is mostly beans like it's it's it, there's almost no meat in it and it's the same dish that he prepared in the first episode and uh spike says hunger is the best spice and that you get this like closing of the loop feeling and during that scene they share a very melancholy moment laughing about a cat joke like just you know just like a really like beautiful friendship connection moment. And, and I think those hit me even harder in this episode. Those, those moments that felt like they were finally connecting together in a real way. Mm -hmm. And then it ends, you know? So to me, the, the weight I'm carrying is not just that, that this character who's awesome is gone, but, but gone right at the moment when it seemed like he was going to find the thing he was looking for. And, and that that's, that makes the, the weight heavier to bear. I think this is one of the reasons why there's so much skepticism about the forthcoming live action Netflix series, because for over 20 years, they have refused to make or remake or do anything with Cowboy Bebop being true to the theme like you can never go back you can you just it's a it's a one-time thing it's happened you know that's the past and now they're doing it so i get where fandom has a lot of pushback no matter what they do with the netflix series but let's be hopeful that that something um good is going to come from it Goodbyes are always hard for me, and you know whether it's in person or whether it's in a movie or or whatever. That's my own personal issues, and I'll leave it at that. Um, but one that got me was when Faye was like trying to talk Spike out of leaving. <laughs> you know, like I finally felt like they made a connection because you know he always kind of looked out for her, but they always kind of didn't like each other. So. For her to finally be like, look, dude, I don't want you to leave. You're my friend. Like, I don't want anything to happen to you. And, and you know, for them to have that conversation, it's like, oh, man. Okay. So they finally connected, too. And it's a little too late, you know, because, I mean, watching the series, you know that he's, he might be walking right into his death. And which inevitably he does, which made me even sadder. Okay, that takes us into our next animated short set of films, The Animatrix, released in 2003 as a prequel of sorts to The Matrix. 2003, that was the year that the space shuttle Columbia disintegrated, coming back to Earth and we lost seven astronauts. There was a massive 
worldwide anti-war protest in anticipation of the Iraq war, which ended up happening. That was also the year that U.S. forces seized control of Baghdad, ending the reign of Saddam Hussein. The year that the first deer was cloned and born and the first horse was cloned and born. Uh, the murder of Zachary Turner, a, a child in um, Canada who was murdered by his mother, prompted a change in law in Canada and also inspired the movie Dear Zachary. Let's the see. saddest documentary ever made. Right. Yeah. The saddest <laughs> documentary ever made. Um, and uh, Europe's busiest shopping center opened uh, called the Bullring. It's in Birmingham. This was also the year the Hubble Space Telescope started ultra deep field and they sent 800 images. So that's when we really got a good look at deep space. Shortly after that, Hurricane Juan devastated Halifax, Virginia. 4chan was launched and created a huge misinformation campaign on our country that still plagues us today. The uh, Concorde made its last flight ending supersonic travel. And uh, the top five grossing movies of 2003 were Lord of the Rings, Return of the King, Finding Nemo, Matrix Reloaded, Pirates of the Caribbean, Curse of the Black Pearl, and Bruce Almighty. So the Wachowski siblings, when they were in Japan promoting the first Matrix film, they had an opportunity to reconnect with some of the animators who had inspired their work animators on on various other projects and earlier films and while they were there they decided hey we should collaborate on something together so they wrote four of the segments for this collection of animated pieces in the matrix universe they didn't actually direct any of them and this was kind of cool a lot of these directors from the animatrix series had maybe only one or two or no credits <laughs> as directors at the time of doing this work. Their background was mostly in animation. And a lot of them actually came from the Final Fantasy universe. That seems to be a major source of inspiration for the Wachowskis and where a lot of these artists came from. One of the directors that they brought on board is Shinichiro Watanabe from Cowboy Bebop. We traced some of the possible ties thematically between Bebop and The Matrix, but in terms of the action style and the feel of it, that kind of mix of sci-fi and noir, not just talking about the leather trench coats in The Matrix, but that style we can see traces back to Cowboy Bebop. And Watanabe directed two episodes, Kid's Story and A Detective Story, Kid's story was actually written by the Wachowskis. So that collaboration was really joint between the two of them. Detective story was written and directed by Watanabe. So that is entirely his. Some cool things, they managed to get back Keanu Reeves and Carrie Ann Moss to do voices for their characters, which show up a couple times during the course of the collection. Four of the films were originally released on the series official website but one of them was shown in the theater in between the release of the Matrix and teeing up the release of Matrix Reloaded. Final Flight of the Osiris, which seems to have a more theatrical look and feel, I'm just going to say, of the rest of the collection, and it's one of the longer pieces. That showed in front of 
Dreamcatcher, which was a sci-fi thriller based on a Stephen King novel. The full collection of animated shorts was released on DVD in 2003. Talent to watch out for. Peter Chung, who directed Matriculated, also worked on Aeon Flux, which we can see connections with. And Andrew Jones, who was an animator for Final Fantasy, went on after Animatrix to work on iRobot, Jungle Book, Lion King, some pretty major studio titles. And Mahiro Maeda, who directed Last Flight of Osiris, again, coming from the Final Fantasy universe, also went on to do animation for Kill Bill and the key concept art for Fury Road. Another project that a bunch of the directors worked on was a film called Wicked City from 1987, which is about two agents, a lady killer human and a demon who is supposedly rather voluptuous. And they attempt to protect a signatory to a peace treaty between the human world and the demon world in order to protect the human world from radicalized demons. So we can see some themes there coming out in some of the shorts in Animatrix and in the Matrix theme more broadly. Final Flight of the Osiris, Rosie. Okay, so this starts out with a couple, I guess, doing the Matrix version of foreplay. <laughs> and you know they, they're in their sword fight and stuff but you know it's almost like strip sword fighting which of course is disrupted when they see the sentinels coming and they find that the sentinels were drilling to get to zion it was really good animation for the time really reminded me a lot of the polar express and i actually looked it up to see like if there was any connection at all because the animation just really reminded me of the way the animation looked in the polar express and I was kind of shocked to find that there really wasn't a connection, but it was very well done. Watching this particular episode does kind of show the progress that has been made in animation just since then. And it was really good at that time in 2003. But now when you watch it, you can see how much animation has improved to where it is now. I guess you could say where you can see like every fine hair on somebody's face and etc. I like this short story, but I didn't like it as much as the rest of them. Um, and I'll just leave it at that. It reminded me of the animation style that shows up in Matrix Reloaded as well. And I remember going to see it and what a big deal it was that they had animated human beings to to look realistic enough where they belonged in the same universe as humans. It was one of the first films to to really do that and it was almost too human like it wasn't animated enough it was in that uncanny valley of feeling like that is a real person's face I'm looking at but there's something not quite right about it that that sort of sense. But also what drew my attention was the way the squiddies and and the, the elements of the matrix that are clearly special effects in the actual film looked identical in this version. They weren't animated any differently. Those registered as real squiddies, whereas the people didn't register as real people. And so that was kind of an interesting thing to think about of um, what elements of the matrix does my brain tell me is real and which ones aren't 
and how is this animated version of reality commenting on what I think is real, which is, of course, a big theme of the series. Let's go into the second Renaissance part one. One thing that was kind of interesting that stuck out to me was the name of the robot who first rebelled against the humans. Of course, these episodes, Second Renaissance Part 1 and 2, trace the story that Morpheus shares in the original Matrix about how it is that the robots came to take over the planet and what humanity did to cause that to happen and also what they did to try to stop it from happening and why the real world is the way it is. Part of it is the robots were increasingly being treated as a slave class of beings and one robot finally stands up to them. This robot is called BI66ER, which is a direct reference to Bigger Thomas, who is the protagonist of the 1939 novel Native Son. So kind of interestingly, they're suggesting there's almost a racial coding in this relationship between the human beings and the robot class. I'm not sure how I feel about that, frankly, but um, but it, it was an interesting reference and the name stuck out immediately as like, oh, that's significant in some way. So go read Native Son and come back to us and, and let us know what you think of that choice. They show some pretty horrific scenes of how terrible the human beings are to the robots and androids. And there's an interesting moment with a peaceful protest by human beings who are allies and advocates on behalf of the robots and they get attacked. And so, so thinking about our current political climate, it's interesting to think about that ally dynamic in this show, you don't really know who to root for. These episodes really complicate your feelings about how much the humans are to blame, which I think is awesome because it is much more clear cut in the Matrix series that the humans are the good guys, life is worth fighting for, the robots represent everything that's wrong with the world. These two episodes really take that dynamic to task. I like the raw animation style of these episodes as well. And then there's a lot of elements where the action is mediated by some other source. We're watching clips from TV shows. We're watching security camera footage, things like that. You get a sense we're on the outside of this conflict and it is coming for us. <laughs> Definitely makes the humans look like total douchebags. There's a great scene where an Android woman is ripped limb from limb. And at first you don't know what you're looking at. You don't know if she's human or not. And it seems like she is. And then you see that she's an android and being attacked. A lot of the visuals also reminded me of iRobot. Some themes also from Battlestar Galactica of the relationship between humans and androids. And of course the Terminator. Tons of imagery coming through of what that barren, conflicted world looks like. Just like I mentioned that Final Fight of the Cyrus reminded me of Final Fantasy, The Spirits Within, although that came later. An antecedent to the Second Renaissance Part 1 and the relationship between humans and androids, to me, is um, AI. Mm. Kubrick's last film, finished by Spielberg, 
definitely you get the androids being ripped apart by humans and stuff like that. You really feel for the machines. When you were talking about race in this, did you mention the quote from the Dred Scott decision? No. The defense attorney is Clarence Drummond, which is a portmanteau of Clarence Darrow and Henry mm. Drummond from Inherit the Wind. And there's a almost a direct quote from the Dred Scott decision uh, where they say, we think they are not and were not intended to be included under the word citizens in the Constitution and can therefore claim none of the rights and privileges which that instrument provides for the for and secures the citizens of the United States. On the contrary, they were at that time considered as a subordinate and inferior class of beings. So yeah, that's definitely a theme they wanted to bring out in the Renaissance part one. How do you feel about this? There's part of me that thinks this is very interesting to draw these parallels and make us reflect on race relations in the United States and historically where we've come from and where we are now and sort of recognizing that at the time that this was made in 2001-ish, releasing in 2003, we were in a different place as a nation than we are now. But I'm not sure, I'm not sure I, I see the parallel. Like I, I see that they imposed that on there, but I would not have gone in this direction personally. I like it. I think that one of the great things about science fiction is that unlike the romance genre in general. Now, science fiction has to do with a setting more than it does character, but unlike the romance genre or, say, the thriller genre, you aren't usually dealing on an individual level as much as you're dealing with a societal level. So you're looking at big social issues often with science fiction. I think that's what science fiction is really good at. So it's really good at offering commentary on society as a whole. That's one of the things I like about science fiction. And that's one of the things I liked about the second Renaissance part one. That so I, see. I was conflicted while I was watching Renaissance one and two, just for the same reasons that you had stated. When you think about it, a robot doesn't need food to survive. It doesn't need shelter. It doesn't need to worry about which political people are running their township at the moment. I mean, they're robots. They weren't designed for that reason. Like they were designed to help us not be citizens alongside of us. But then at the same time, it was disturbing to me to watch that scene where the female robot was being torn to shreds. And in that respect, that shows how inhumane humans can be. It's like a really age-old question in science fiction. And think of this in terms of abortion or something. If you have the ability to create something that has sentient conscience, mm -hmm. do you have the right to govern its entire existence? Can you say, I created you, therefore I can destroy you at any time for any reason? Or does artificial intelligence at some point have rights? Does it reach a point where artificial intelligence says, I'm an android, but I petition the courts for the right to self-governance and you can't destroy me just because you created me. You know, I now have my own life. I think mm -hmm. I, you know, that's, I, yeah, go ahead. Yeah, I see that. I think, I think maybe what Rosie and I are snagging on a little bit is 
reinforcing this parallel between enslaved people from history and robots like that the there is a difference <laughs> there's a very yeah, significant definitely a difference. difference and th this is just kind of an interesting thing that happens with fiction that is trying to make a critique of the society that sometimes it inadvertently reinforces the exact thing that it's trying to create yes that, that it's it's trying to create it's trying to critique race relations and and the history of relations in the united states but in the process it is accidentally reinforcing this parallel between people of color not being quite human it's like it's it's trying to critique that idea but it also is introducing it which is a problem so as the only semi person of color on here <laughs> I will yes. say all right that, right fair that, that i don't quite see it that way but i wish we you know this is one where we, we could really use some people writing into us to give us their opinion, particularly people of color. What did you think of that comparison? Anyway, I don't want to get hung up on this too much because there are nine episodes here. And we're almost... just, I just real quick, though, I yeah. do want to point out that the robots were created to be of service to us, whereas on the other hand, if you're using human beings to be of service to you in that way, you know, it's all rooted in taking that person out of their culture and forcing them to take care of you and meet your needs. Okay, and so so if what if I that's said like hmm. I, I'm a jealous God and you either worship me or you go to hell, but I'm going to give you free will. All right. Right. <laughs> but if you turn against me, I'm going to send the angel of death to kill every firstborn man, every firstborn animal and, you know, cause a plague onto tons of, you know, and suffering for. In fact, it doesn't even have to be you. It just has to be your ruler. If your ruler decides to go against me, you know, mm -hmm. I'm going to cause mass suffering for all your people because I love you. I am a loving God that created you and you have free will. But you serve me. Damn it. You serve me. Okay, now I have PTSD from growing up in church, so. Well, I was going to say, actually, what's interesting about this set of nine films is I felt like they didn't dive into the religious side of the Matrix nearly as much as the, the films do. The films are like clear biblical parallels and this oh, yeah. idea of like, there's a higher plane of existence that we all are going to get to and that you're like trapped thinking this is the real world and like obvious religious parallels there. It's kind of nice actually that this set set of nine shorts, I didn't feel like there were those religious overtones, but we can, we can dig into the other, other episodes and see if you disagree. Well, I just used religion as a, um, just, I used it for comparison terms to, of, someone who creates someone else right right yeah the, uh, the idea that you own that which you create even if your creation feels differently about it you know the frankenstein thing the second renaissance part two there's nuclear devastation from this war between the humans and the machines but the machines are pretty much impervious to radiation so they basically pretty much took over at this point Humans then, to counteract this, initiated Operation Dark Star, which is one of the stupidest things ever. So they decided to <laughs> blot out the sun because the machines apparently, I guess, are solar powered and get their 
energy from the sun. So they blanket the entire earth with black clouds that stop any sunlight from getting to the earth, which, you know, I, who thought up this plan? Because like, you know, who needs the sun more? Humans. This, this, <laughs> this little, like, this turns We're into already a... depressed enough. Yeah, <laughs> now you're going to well, take the sun away. <laughs> well, that, that means no food, no nothing because plants can't grow and things like that. So there's a total collapse of the biosphere and then the machines really take over. Both the look and lines like this remind me of Brain Scratch from Cowboy Bebop, where the line is, um, uh, I have it here somewhere, uh, your flesh is a relic, a mere vessel, hand over your flesh and a new world awaits you. We demand mm -hmm. it. Um, but also that we, when we were talking about Brain Scratch, we talked about that mix of live action, that mix of animation. And this, for the, one of the first times, a really good mix of computer graphic animation with traditional anime cell animation. The humans are completely conquered. They have to surrender. And the machines, they win, but it's kind of a Pyrrhic victory. So they need to rebuild because they're lacking power now too. So they build the matrix, basically these little pods to put the humans in and they keep them sedated and use them as batteries. One of the things that most bugged me about the matrix, which Rosie knows we will talk about in the upcoming episode of the matrix. And then, you know, they keep them alive and they keep them in this state where they have an artificial reality that they live in that doesn't actually exist. And few people escape eventually neo our protagonist will in the matrix and so that's the new renaissance part too did anybody notice the apple that like an apple showed up throughout the whole thing yes the, the one religious overtone there is the definitely... one religious overtone and i find it <laughs> <laughs> well is that a religious overtone or is that apple computers Ooh, um, could be both could be both I mean, you know, Adam and Eve, that kind of all was launched with an apple. Internet yeah. technology, all launched with an apple. Just saying, throwing it out there. <laughs> did I men Did we mention back when we were talking about Cowboy Bebop that Ed's father was named Apple something? Yes. And his partner. Uh, we didn't talk about that, but yeah, thank you. And for his partner that out. was Macintosh. Oh. That's right. Yes. <laughs> so, so anyway, next up is Kid Story. This one was written by uh, the Wachowskis. It starts off with this kid who has a dream of falling off a building and then you know, mentions like, why does it feel more real when I'm dreaming than when I'm awake? And he's a high school kid going to Clearview High School. And uh, he was in a situation and he started saying, Neo and Trinity, get me out of here, get me out of here. And he wrote that on a notebook. I don't know if you guys saw that there was like a notebook and there was a bunch of scratches on there, which looks like one of my notebooks, but it said, you know, Neo Trini, get me out of here. They figure out that he knows that he's living in a simulation. So then they start coming after him. He goes to jump off a building and verbalizes like Neo Trinity, help me you know, get out of there. And then it cuts to a funeral for the kid. And then I believe it was Trinity that you hear mentioning, like, this is the first time a human has done self-substantiation, which basically he killed himself to go to get out of the simulation and to live in the real actual world. Fascinating take on that. I enjoyed this short film. 
This is another great example of an episode that is calling back to something that's referenced in the matrix. In this case, it's a reference to something that happens in Matrix Reloaded, I think. So this may have been preview or developed simultaneously with that storyline. But in Matrix Reloaded, there's this kid who follows Neo around like a dog and thinks that he saved him. And Neo says, I didn't save you, kid. You saved yourself. And that this is that character's backstory. And there are a number of, of shorts in this collection where it's a reference to some like throwaway line or an idea from the past that then they managed to flesh out and animate in a cool way. Program, Johanna. I loved this episode. This one was so much fun to watch. It's classic samurai look and feel, feels like classic anime to me. And there's almost a Westworld sense about it. The two characters are in this samurai world, but they've come here for practice. The way the episode sets it up for you is you think that they are people who are aware of the real world and are coming to play in the matrix in a universe that they've created. And one of the characters is confronting the other saying, I figured out a way to go back. I, fi I figured out a way for us to take the blue pill instead and live in the matrix forever, which is exactly what Cypher's plan is in, in the original matrix film. They have this epic fight scene <laughs> where they are in the forest with snow. I hate to say that it did kind of remind me of the awesome lightsaber fight from uh, Force Awakens with Rey and Kylo Ren. Like there was, there was a little bit of an echo there and I'm like, oh, that's where, that's where they stole that from. Um, they stole it from, from this samurai scene, probably <laughs> millions of others, but love the way the forest fight scene with the snow was animated. And then the chase over the tops of buildings, super fun. But then the character Sis refuses to go along with this plan to take the blue pill and go back, is just about to be executed when she is unplugged and wakes up and it was all just a training. This was such a great little bite-sized episode and, and that turn of, oh, what we're watching is a training. What we're watching was something they were doing intentionally. But she is seriously shaken by this, just as we, the audience, are. And she hits the guy who, who was putting the training on. And the episode ends with this amazing animated sequence where she is on the elevator. And all you can see is her purple hair silhouetted. And then the light from the elevator comes on and reveals her face. And it, it's just animated in such a cool way. This episode also brings up themes of betrayal, which is a frequent theme in the Matrix series. Every film features a pretty major betrayal by, by one person or another. It also brings back this sense of what's real, what matters. And in the course of the training, the guy who's insisting that they take the blue pill says, what's real doesn't matter, only how we live our lives, which I think is an interesting message to bring out 
for fans who get wrapped up in this idea of like everything's a conspiracy or none of it's real or it's all just a projection from my own brain or whatever but sort of reinforcing yeah you can go down those rabbit holes all you want trying to figure out what's real and what's not real but ultimately what matters is how we live our lives and that message is true whether you're in the real world or in the matrix that quote actually kind of saddened me just for the people in the matrix world. Like maybe they got to that point where they're just like, it doesn't matter if it's real or not. This is my life now. And this is how I have to live it. And that always kind of breaks my heart a little bit. I always root for humans to live like good, fulfilling lives and to be happy and things like that, you know, and, and in the matrix, is that even possible? They're not living in reality. And if they were living in reality, it's not great. So you know, where, where do, I, I don't know. It just took me down a rabbit hole of like in that world, where do people find happiness? Do and do they find true happiness? You know, and if they find happiness, is it real if it's in the virtual world? And if it's in the real world, is it really true happiness because everything is so messed up? So that was just my, that was my brain working over time, thinking about that way overthinking it. <laughs> Let's jump into the next episode here, which is called World Record. The first note I took on this was, did anyone watch Liquid TV? This looks like Iron Flux. All I right. watched that. So now- I watched that. That was good. And, and, and when you pointed out that was the same animation, I was like, yup, it sure is. Yeah. So it's a very stylized form of animation. I'm not a crazy about it, but it really fits this episode. So- this is about a Olympic runner. He's a U.S. track and field competitor who has the world record in the 100 meter. Since he's made the world record, has become like disgraced for failing drug tests. He has this chip on his shoulder. He's going to prove them wrong that he can really beat that score even without drugs or whatever. His coach refuses to go along with this. And the whole point of this episode, we learn at the very beginning, the narrator tells us that not everybody escapes the matrix the same way. That most who learn of the matrix learn about it through a combination of intuition, sensitivity, and a questioning nature, but not everyone. And so this race is being monitored by agents of the matrix. And what happens is during the race, he exceeds what I guess is supposedly humanly possible. And his muscles and tendons burst in his legs, but he manages through sheer willpower finish the race and break the record, but that burst of energy somehow makes him snap out of the matrix. Like he overloads it or something and like sees that he's actually just living in this pod and realizes what's going on. Of course, the matrix tenders immediately swoop in and sedate him and he eventually wakes up in a hospital in a wheelchair but he succeeded he beat it but he's also now aware about the matrix existing they say that he's not going to be a problem that they've wiped his memory but in the final scene this nurse is babbling as she's wheeling him in a home or in a hospital and he's still being watched by an agent and he manages to get up out of the chair even though his legs supposedly don't work anymore and 
breaks out of restraints that hold him into the wheelchair and he says the word free but then he collapses and uh it gets put back in the wheelchair and that's the end of the episode world record it's very different in feel from the other episodes clearly they wanted to do a willpower triumph of the human spirit thing here to me it doesn't work like a lot of things in the matrix i often have problems with the science in the in the science fiction here the matrix is heavy on parable and it's heavy on the higher concepts but translating them into the science doesn't always work and that part of my humans as batteries thing is just kind of flawed and then this idea that you can escape it by like some burst of energy it's it's really it makes for a very like poetic and passionate story but it doesn't make for one that makes a lot of sense to me like how does the science behind this work which is a problem i have with a lot of these yeah i would actually say one of the things i liked about this episode is that it's a break from the larger war a lot of these shorts and you know of course the whole movie series is very focused on like the human resistance to the robots and the ultimate battle that's coming and what i like about this episode is that it's kind of got more application to how we think about our own lives and what holds us back especially with athletes pushing themselves to not believe in their limitations and just believe that they can keep pushing and that there's always more that they can give they can always be faster they can always be stronger and so i think this is kind of an interesting application of the matrix to a real life kind of thing and that even though they show you the pods and tie his story to the larger tale kind of the mythology of it feels like it's got more real world in it which i liked it was it was nice to take a break from the war for a sec I also like how it kind of pointed out how we have a tendency to push athletes to unhealthy limits. That's one thing that we're just now starting to talk about, really, really look into and talk about. For example, the effect of concussions on athletes. You know, the NFL has really been taken to task on that whole topic because there are football players out there that can't function like normal human beings because they had so many concussions throughout their career. Their brains are mush now. In roller derby, if you hit your head, you have to sit out so many jams before they allow you back in because we're very conscious about brain injuries and things like that. Now, granted, this guy blew out his legs trying to break a world record, pushing himself far past the limits that, you know, his body probably should have gone. So it kind of brought up that whole thing for me. How far is too far for competition, you know? And, and how far is too far for you to push yourself? It presented some interesting questions as I was watching it and brought up some interesting points for me personally. Beyond. Beyond. I love this episode. I love the style that it was drawn in. The character was super cute with her pink and turquoise hair and her star on her face. And I just loved her. I just loved her. I loved her so much. Um, her name was Yoko and she was looking for her cat Yuki. Yoko, in searching for Yuki, ends up in a haunted house, quote unquote haunted house. I have to say quote unquote because people aren't going to see my fingers right now. Come to find out it was kind of a glitch in the matrix that she had discovered. And there were other kids there too. And they figured out all these cool things they could do because it was like this weird 
glitch in the matrix where they could make themselves float and everything like that. But once it's discovered that these kids figured out what this place was, they come in and they reconfigure the space and move it somewhere else or fix the glitch in the matrix or whatever. And she did find her cat, by the way. It was an interesting take on the story. It was visually pleasing. I loved every aspect of it. This was probably my favorite short out of all of them. What are your thoughts? To be honest, I think I didn't take her seriously because of the hair and the star on her face. And (laughs) so I just sort of tuned out. Um, You don't have to put that in the episode, but let's freely admit that. (laughs) It it might or might not end up in the episode. We'll see. (laughs) All right. Um, Well, then why don't you just go into the next one, which is, I don't know what it's called. Detective story. Uh, detective story. Detective story. Yeah. Written and directed by uh, Shinshiro Watanabe. Definitely feels the most cowboy bebop of the two episodes that he directed. I just loved everything about it. I loved the look and feel of the noir black and white cinematography or, or animation. Loved seeing Trinity back in action. That was really cool. I don't know why I thought that none of the original characters showed up in the Animatrix, but I was surprised and and pleased to see her show up here. It seems like film noir is her natural element. She is that femme fatale kind of character as much as being a total fucking badass all the time. There are a lot of great classic noir elements in addition to the visual style and the trench coats and the hats that they're wearing. The fact that a lot of the action takes place on a train seems like a great callback to noir, even some Hitchcock mysteries, which this episode is. We're seeing this mostly from the point of view of this detective who has been hired to investigate a hacker called Trinity. So we get kind of this cool genre mashup of it's it's a detective story, that noir element, but it's also sci-fi hackers, all of that. One of the things that is interesting about the episode is it's another instance of someone getting very close to getting out of the matrix and falling just short. And that theme seems to come up a lot in the animatrix and that these stories of someone getting very close and not getting out or someone who's in danger of not getting out and manages it at the last second. In this case, the detective and Trinity end up teaming up once she removes the bug out of his eye. Yikes. Yeah. <laughs> and, um, but ultimately, while they're on the train together being pursued by agents, he starts to feel himself getting taken over by one. And the episode ends with this brutal necessity of eliminating the detective before he turns into a smith. And I feel like that noir element works perfectly in terms of the mood of that moment of ultimately the real world is dark and violent and hopeless and it ends badly for good people. So um, (laughs) (laughs) really, really enjoyed Detective Story. Great action sequences and great performance by Carrie Ann Moss doing the voice of her own character. So I want to pick out a couple of references to film noir here and hard-boiled fiction in particular. Both Sam Spade and Philip Marlowe are mentioned, Dashiell Hammett and Raymond Chandler's major spies that were in numerous 
films noir. Um, <laughs> and Ash's cat is named Dinah, which is a reference to the character Dinah in Red Harvest, which was Dashiell Hammett's first novel that kicked off the hard-boiled detective craze. Also, Dinah happens to be, if you remember Alice in Wonderland, that was the name of the cat that Alice had. Remember, she scolds Dinah a couple of times. Mm. Obviously, there's lots of references to Alice in Wonderland in The Matrix. The Matrix itself is compared to Wonderland. Remember the rabbit hole and all of that. Follow the white rabbit. Yeah. Follow the white rabbit, the two pills and all of that. The other neat little thing is we talked about firearms and how specific firearms lend a specific mood to different things. We talked about this a bunch when we were talking about the Bond series. Often in hard-boiled fiction, you have the snub-nosed revolver. In this case, it's a Colt detective special, which appears in tons of film noirs because it's an easily concealable, very reliable gun. It's Ash's revolver in this, but also we talked about how a lot of this happens on a train and in the matrix, when we get to that, we'll talk about the train man and he has one of these cult detective special revolvers too. Matriculated. In my opinion, animatrix in the order that it's in on video which is not the way that it was released theatrically in Australia and not the way you can find it currently streaming as of the time we're recording this, which uses a different order ending with the final flight of the Osiris. This ends with matriculated, which in my opinion is one of the weaker installments. It was one of my least favorite. You basically have a bunch of humans that live above ground that are not trapped in the matrix and they, catch robots or AIs, whatever they are, and they put them into their own kind of matrix where they're trying to like get the robots to understand that humans have feelings and they're trying to get the robots to have feelings. It's weird. I think it's, you know, they eventually, the Sentinels discover where they are and raid them while they're trying to do this to yet another robot. They seem to be marginally successful with one but everything is destroyed they're trying to get the robots to dream the whole thing is surreal and nonsensical to me they succeed in converting one robot i guess it's supposed to give us hope that this is going to go back you know and infect the matrix uh running the hive mind or whatever and hopefully turn the tide because now the ais have feelings for humans i don't know this was an interesting commentary about the role that fiction plays in building empathy and helping us understand people who are unlike ourselves. While a lot of The Matrix definitely is making a commentary about what we do on the internet is real and whether you can make real connections in the virtual world or how much of our brain is being sucked into that so that we're not living our own lives or whether the only thing that's real is what's on the internet because that's where you can really be yourself and then the real world is where you're trapped like there's a lot of commentary there but there's not a lot in the matrix about fiction and storytelling and what it is that slipping into that experience can do for you in terms of greater good or personal transformation and i felt like this episode was an example of that 
if they're able to show the machine some glimpse of what their experience is like, then the machine is possibly able to develop empathy towards them. And that in some ways it's kind of indicating what this larger project with the matrix is about that it's it's about communicating a type of experience so that you can become more sympathetic to other people who feel like they can't be themselves who feel like they are disconnected from reality or other people feel like they aren't able to fully actualize who they want to be not trying to read too much into the parallels about the Wachowski siblings going through their own transformation, but a lot of fans have definitely cited that as a possible inspiration for the Matrix of feeling like you're trapped in one form of yourself, but there is a better version of yourself or a truer version of yourself that you could access in another world. It's, it's amazing how much the world has changed since then. I am the parent of a trans child myself and watching their transformation has been interesting because they've always been throughout their life. They've been trying to find out, you know, find their true selves. And I feel like my child personally has, is, is getting to that point and I'm very proud of them. I love them very much. So it's kind of nice to revisit this whole series again this day and age and kind of talk about that. Yeah, and I feel like we've given a lot of discussion to our disclaimers about spoilers, but I think that I, I now I should have clarified this at the top of the show. I think all three of us consider ourselves trans allies on this show. Absolutely. We, 100%. We, but this particular show is about film history and so it's okay i think for us to refer to the wachowski brothers because they were at the time when we talk about their new film they are the wachowski sisters now you know we can refer to them as the wachowski siblings in either place but i i want to say that there's no disrespect meant there if we slip into brothers at some point when we're talking about the matrix because at the time the film was made that's what they were credited as that being said back into matriculated the one thing that stuck out to me in this episode was that they're catching these robots and they're putting them into the matrix themselves and there's like all this thought in the matrix put on how that's a bad thing and how unethical it is for the machines to put humans and keep humans just as batteries you know and and keep them in this artificial world this virtual reality but they address that in this episode at the beginning when they're catching one one of the humans says you know it doesn't matter because to an artificial mind all reality is virtual so it's okay for us to, to trap robots in this matrix of their own i thought that was very interesting that pretty much wraps it up for the animatrix i want to say that this was kind of groundbreaking at least in the us i don't know about in japan where in the far east it seems like there's a lot more tradition of doing this animated version of things and then live action version of things and stuff like that but it seems like animatrix sort of broke the door open to this now common or more common thing of doing animated prequels i know the chronicles of riddick pitch black series has done it the Blade Runner has done it and short films in general. I think the Alien series, which we've already done on the show just before the pandemic, they started releasing a bunch of fan films as part of their 
20th anniversary and things like that. It seems like the Animatrix was groundbreaking for more reasons than just the individual episode. So I don't want to lose sight of the whole package here. Overall, it seemed like they gave the creators of these shorts a lot of uh, latitude and a lot of freedom to do what they wanted. Probably asked them to stay away from the main characters, although they do appear in it. They're not the focus of most of these episodes. I do think it seems a little disjointed because of that. And some of these improve the Matrix backstory and some further convolute it. And in fact, I think with a lot of things, too much backstory is not necessarily a good thing. So, you know, I've said this about Star Wars a ton when we talk about the Star Wars prequels, but I don't know where I find the balance on this. I think that the Animatrix overall is excellent. I think that not every episode is going to connect with every person as we've seen just between us, but it's definitely worth checking out for fans of the Matrix for sure. But just about any fan of science fiction should have a look, especially if you like anime, because a number of these are anime influenced or straight up animes. Well, you know, what? one thing I was thinking about too, is it's really a shame that they didn't do a backstory on the Oracle. I think that would have been a very cool storyline to explore. Like what's her backstory? Where did she come from? How did she become the Oracle? I would love to know that. I, I've been, had that question in the back of my mind since I first watched The Matrix. Okay, well maybe, uh, maybe someone will do that still. Mm -hmm. I have a feeling that with uh, Matrix 4 coming out in December this year, Maybe we will see another round of Animatrix-like prequels coming. I would not be surprised if someone isn't already at work on that. They're missing an opportunity if they don't do a backstory on the Oracle. That's all I'm saying. Until next time, this is Eric. This is Rosie. This is Johanna. Signing off. Start out with brain scratch. Oh gosh, brain scratch. 